Hi, welcome to Spirit Matters. This is Phil Goldberg, uh, my usual co-host. Dennis Ramundi cannot be with us today. And so I am uh, flying solo with our esteemed guest, who I will now introduce. Jim Blake is the CEO of Unity World Headquarters, a spiritual nonprofit. He previously served the organization as chief information officer and as vice president of operations. He's also held numerous executive positions in the corporate world. He has a master's degree in divinity or Masters of Divinity degree. He's an ordained unity minister, and he's the author of the book we'll be discussing today, The Zen Executive, Gems of Wisdom for Enlightened Leadership. Welcome, Jim. Thank you, sir. It is my honor and privilege to be with you today. Let's begin, as uh, we like to do on Spirit Matters, with uh, an overview of your own spiritual path, if you could uh, give us the uh, highlights, how you came to the path you're on, and uh, then we'll get to your book. Sure. So I didn't grow up in a particularly religious family. Uh, the only thing that, that my mother was really religious about was putting me on a Sunday school bus to go to the Baptist Sunday school from the ages of about seven to 11. And so that was my first exposure to any sort of religion. And once I got a little too old for the Sunday school program, my family wasn't church. So I didn't go to a lot of church except for on some special occasions. And it wasn't really until I got to college and took my first world religions course that I was just blown away. I was uh, amazed by all of the different religions and really struck by the beauty of the different truths across all of the different paths. And so that's really when sort of a light switch went off for me and I became a seeker and, and really started studying all a number of the different traditions. Um, I studied Buddhism, I studied Hinduism, read the Bhagavad Gita. And then uh, later in life, got introduced to yoga. So I studied, I developed a healthy yoga practice and studied the eight limb path. And then I got introduced to a, a number of, you know, new age practices as well. And so as I be, as I continued to seek and journey along this path, I, I stumbled across a unity church and, and really began to resonate with what they were sharing in terms of their teachings and principles. Um, and all of those things began to sort of filter over into my personal life. I sort of had this inner dialogue about why do we compartmentalize what we do at work versus what we do on the spiritual path? And is there a way that these two can, can coexist? And so that's a little bit about my journey and, and sort of how I got to, to where I am today. Which brings us to your book. But first, um, for those listeners um, and viewers who are not familiar with unity, and I'm sure many are, uh, give us a quick uh, understanding of unity's place in the spiritual and religious spectrum. Sure. So in the late 1800s, um, something evolved um, called new thought. And it, it, it 
ultimately it has become a tradition, but new thought is an umbrella term that contains several traditions, if you will. Unity is one. Centers for Spiritual Living is another. Uh, for those of you that are familiar with Reverend Dr. Michael Beckwith and his Agape Center, it falls under the umbrella of new thought, divine science. All of these are under, they're all different traditions, but they largely teach the same principles. A little bit different nomenclature in each, but they're largely teaching the same thing. And, and uh, these principles, I'll speak to unity specifically. So the co-founders, Charles and Myrtle Fillmore, who founded this movement in the late 1800s, uh, healed themselves using today what we now is known uh, to be scientifically proven, but by changing their thoughts, managing their emotions, it had a direct impact on the body and it had a direct impact on their healing. And so they began to then put sort of together um, this set of principles, the tools and techniques that they used. I will tell you that both were well-studied in the Eastern traditions and how they landed on the name unity is they believed they brought forth some of the the principles that ran common across all the worldly traditions and put them into one place, which is how they arrived at the, at the name Unity. Once they began sharing uh, this work and the teachings, a, a large prayer ministry developed. Um, Myrtle began to pray with others for their healing. And after some demonstrated works, it became very popular. What grew out of that is about a 128 year old prayer ministry where people can write, they can call in, they can submit electronic prayer requests. They are prayed over by prayer associates uh, every hour of the day, 24-7, 365. That's been happening for well over 100 years. They're held in the prayer vigil chapel for 30 days after the request is made. In addition to that, they started publishing magazines. Our flagship magazine is Daily Word. It's a non-denominational daily devotional which uh, has sort of an affirmation sentence, if you will, to start, then a paragraph about that, and then ends with a Bible verse. We also publish Unity Magazine, which is sort of a new thought magazine, if you will. So some of the same teachers that you might find on, on Oprah's Super Soul Sunday, you'll find in this magazine. Lots of booklets, so a spiritual approach to, to everything from healing to addiction to prosperity to becoming a caregiver. Um, those are all done in booklets each year. And then finally, as they grew, they began to purchase some farmland just outside of Kansas City. And that has evolved into about a 1,200 acre campus, which has a state of the art hotel and conference center, a golf course, a couple of fishing lakes. Um, it's basically a resort property. And there are a number of retreats and events that are spiritually centric that are held here each year. Does that help? Yes, very good. And I will recommend a visit to Unity Village uh, to our our uh, viewers because uh, I did spend, I went to a conference there, I, was, I spoke, and it was a lovely place to visit. Um, Jim, why the book? Why the Zen Executive? <clears throat> so as I mentioned, as these, as these sort of spiritual practices started to bleed over into my corporate life, a couple of other things began to happen. And I've worked for, as, as you alluded to in the, in the reading of the bio, I've worked for a number of large organizations, um, some global leading companies. And what I began to learn, really, and, and unfortunately so, is what didn't work from a leadership and culture perspective. And that sort of put me on, again, a seeker's path, if you will, for there's got to be a better way to lead. There's got to be better ways to, to lead than what I'm experiencing. There's got to be better ways to establish healthy culture that really work. And 
So I, I would say primarily um, what drove the book was I, I believe there are better ways to lead and better ways to create a healthy culture. And I wanted to get that out into the world. There were under this misconception that uh, the old school leadership styles of fear and intimidation and command and control are the only way to lead organizations. And, and what I would suggest and what I suggest in the book is it's just not true. In fact, the opposite approach is going to get you even greater results. When you treat people with compassion, lift them up, um, make sure they feel seen and heard and really appreciate what they do, care about their self-care, you end up with a far more productive person than if you're if they're spending all of their time scared that they're going to get fired, afraid to bring you any suggestions for improvement, you know, nervous about their job on a regular basis. So they're anxiety ridden and filled with fear. They're not performing at their best when they're in that sort of state. And here's the difficult part. That doesn't get left at the office. They take that home. So now they're out in the world with all of that same emotional baggage, if you will, when there is another way, when you can lead the other way, which will create greater and great engagement, greater productivity. And when people leave the office, they're actually in a great space and are actually better worldly citizens as well. Why the title? Why? <laughs> and so, I ask for a reason because um, the word Zen has particular meaning, as you know, as in Zen Buddhism. You are not uh, explicitly in any event uh, of Zen Buddhist. You may have been influenced by it, um, but it also has this symbolic sense uh, in our in our normal uses how did why did you choose to call it zen the zen executive it actually came out of a story which i tell in the book i was working for a very large organization that was serving some of the largest utilities in the country and and we were asked to go into a particularly heated meeting where there was some disagreement about who was responsible for the way the software platform was performing and I was asked to lead the discussion. And typically um, these meetings, which are filled with very big titles and lots of big egos can get pretty out of hand pretty quickly. Everybody walks away okay, but during the meeting, it's usually pretty, pretty raucous um, and uh, in some cases can get even a little bit personal. And so given what I had learned in terms of nonviolent communication and how to stay centered in situations like this, I led the meeting and I led it very carefully. I didn't allow anyone's comments to go without me intervening and ensure, ensure, ensuring that I heard what I thought they were saying, and then I would call for a response. And so this kept the meeting at a relatively peaceful pace. Um, and although voices got raised, it wasn't anything like some of those meetings had gone in the past. And so all that said, the meeting was productive. When we were leaving and walking down the hall to go to dinner, um, my boss at the time came to me and said, you know, you're an interesting person. When I hired you, and so let me tell you this, so I'm, I have a relatively uh, large physical stature. I'm 6'3", and I, I weigh about 280 pounds, former football player. And so he said, you know, when I hired you, I thought I was getting a linebacker for my business. That you were going to come in and be really aggressive and do this and that and the other. And he said, instead, I ended up with this like Zen Buddhist guy and, and I wasn't sure how to take it. And he said, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't mean that in a derogatory way, 
I'm just shocked that you're able to get the results that you're you're getting with your approach to leadership. And so thus, uh, it seemed to translate into a good title for the book. Well, you have the uh, Zen hairstyle. <laughs> I do indeed. Yeah. <laughs> um, so the idea, as I understand it, is, is to align spiritual principles and practices with effective leadership. Um, is there resistance to this notion? I mean, even setting aside spirituality, just the notion of more humanistic styles of management has been with us for some time. And yet you still hear nightmare stories about how big corporations treat workers and uh, all that. Um, why the resistance? Yeah, I think people fear. Yeah, I, I think they fear that uh, a number of things. Being nice and doing some of the things that I talk about in terms of compassion and lifting people up, they're afraid they're not going to get the same results that they would the other way. And I would say number two, um, especially younger leaders. And look, I fell into this category. Young leaders, I don't think, understand the influence they have. And they think being a leader is about being a boss and telling people what to do. And so part of my journey with this whole book is to really turn that paradigm on its head. Um, you're seeing that some of this start to evolve, though, in Silicon Valley. You've got very progressive companies in the Valley that are doing a number of things to support their associates, and including you know, bringing meditation practices into the work and, and things of that nature. But to your point, there still is a great deal of resistance. I think it's just like anything else. The old paradigm is hanging on. And, and I think people are just afraid to try it because they're afraid they will fail. And I'll be honest, Phil, at first, I didn't know if any of this would work. So I began to do it in small teams. And then my teams got bigger and the results got better. And so this was really my first opportunity in a C-level role to say, okay, I wonder if I can do this across an entire culture and if it will indeed work. And so, and not only am I doing it and have the anecdotal data to support it, but now you're seeing all this research come out. You know, recently, the most recent trend is, is four-day work weeks, right? And so these are things that, that I've been talking about and that I talk about in the book. But it's about creating a proper work-life balance and getting people to a mental and emotional state where they can be their, their most productive. And so I think if people will actually try it and put it into practice, they will see that their teams are far more engaged and far more productive. But it's just getting over that initial hurdle. And I'll, I'll say this. Even with my success in that large company, I was still kind of the odd man out. People didn't know what to do with me. You know, I didn't fit in because I didn't, I didn't handle personnel issues and things the same way that, that they did. And so uh, having an opportunity to work at a spiritual nonprofit, the size and scope of Unity with 300 associates really gives me the space to do both and be totally accepted for the way that I lead and in fact embraced, if that makes sense. It does, and it, uh, it anticipates the, uh, another question I had, which is um, the difference between a, a profit-making organization and a nonprofit, and a, specifically a spiritual, spiritual, uh, a, a nonprofit with a spiritual mission. Mm -hmm. 
also the difference between a giant company and a moderately uh, smallish one. Um, you've experienced those differences. Yep. What do those differences mean in terms of implementing the kind of leadership programs or style that you uh, advocate? Well, there's a couple of things um, that I think, well, where organizations make, a, I think, a, a generally relatively large mistake is in this idea of a consistent leadership philosophy. And so in my book, I advocate for a style called servant leadership uh, founded by Robert K. Greenleaf and and uh, it reverses the paradigm. So instead of the, the senior leaders and managers being the most important people in the organization, they're actually there to support the people that are working directly with those that you serve. They're there to provide the tools and resources and environment that they need to be their most productive. And so it really is about being of service and supporting and lifting them up. So that particular style is great. But if you're in a large organization where I'm practicing that, but Joe over here is, is practicing command and control, and then you've got the vice president of HR going, I don't understand our culture. We've done all these great things for our culture, but the people are largely the people are still complaining that they're not happy and they're not having good experience. Well, that's because you've got two people under two different leaders and two different leadership styles that are having a completely different experience of your organization. Whereas if you centralize and create one style of leadership and you know do whatever you have to do, book clubs or study groups or classes to get everyone on the same page of leadership, now everyone is going to have the same experience of leadership regardless of where they are in the organization. And so I think large organizations have trouble adopting that idea. Uh, and getting it across to all leaders. doesn't mean that everyone leads the same way. They're all going to have their own personal spin on it. But generally speaking, they're leading with the same values, if that makes sense. Um, but there, I think there's probably more areas where there's commonalities than differences. And so I'll give you an example. Many of us have heard of or been exposed to the spiritual principle of prosperity, right? And the prosperity teachings. and um, some corporate organizations are actually practicing prosperity and they don't even know it. Practicing prosperity consciousness, meaning they are establishing that they're worth it and they're creating a vision for how they're going to achieve it. And so at this large for-profit organization I worked with, they were basically practicing what we would call prosperity principles and didn't even know it. They had a swagger. There wasn't a deal they didn't believe they couldn't get. Um, there wasn't a budget gap they didn't think they could close through hard work and additional sales. And, and it was amazing to me. And they, and they weren't necessarily doing it in the in service to greed, per se, as they were just they felt like that was their mission was to, to go and, and achieve these results and they were worthy of it. And so it was interesting for me to see that and then make the connection. Wow, they're practicing prosperity principles right here and they don't even know it. And so I think that's true across any size organization that some of these things you can do regardless of size and scope. Others, like, like I talked about standardizing on a, on a single leadership philosophy, you may have a little bit more challenge with, if that makes sense. And I would think that a, a profit-making corporate uh, company would be less um, uh, accepting of these principles because it's it might be seen as too soft or uh, foreign to what they're accustomed to. Whereas 
it's spiritual, so a spiritual organization would embrace them. Is that? That's been my experience, absolutely. And even if you, here's the thing, all of these things can be couched inside the spiritual wrapper, or you can take them out and they can be described and implemented using secular terms and PowerPoint decks, just like any other corporate practice. But in either case, you hit the nail on the head. People are afraid to try something different. And I think they really fear what happens if it fails? What happens if, you know, doing this, this fails? And, and uh, it's unfortunate, but it's, it's sort of the reality at this point. So I will uh, play devil's advocate and ask you a question I'm sure uh, comes up in these contexts, namely, well, that's all well and good uh, in good times yep. when the business is doing well and the organization is flourishing and you're meeting your budget and all that. What about hard times? What about the difficult things? What happens when you have serious money problems, when you have to lay people off, when you have to... What do you do when there's interpersonal conflicts within the organization and you have to deal with that kind of ugly stuff? What happens when you have a big setback or a, a, a defeat? How do these principles hold up then? So in my personal opinion and experience, it actually makes the organization stronger. It gives you greater depth to be able to overcome these things. First of all, everyone will have a sense you're in it together because you've created a culture where they feel like they're family. They feel appreciated, seen, and heard. And as long as you keep coming forward with uh, transparency when, when and how you can and are, are very honest with people, you can do all the things you normally do. Being Leading in this way does not mean you can't hold people accountable. You can absolutely hold people accountable. In fact, it's one of the number one things that we espouse as a leadership team is making sure we hold people to the same standard of accountability. You just do it in a way that respects them as a fellow human being. It's very, it's not that difficult. You can go to someone and say, listen, here are the facts. Here's what the job requires. Here's what you're doing great. Here's the things you're not doing. We really need to work on these or we're going to have to have a different discussion. And you you know, is there any way I can support you? Is there any way I can help you achieve these things? So that's a that's a very easy conversation. Nobody had to shout. Nobody had to demean anyone. And yet you're still holding the personal accountable to perform at a particular level. I can tell you that during the pandemic, for us as a nonprofit, especially with this large campus and a large part of our business relying on in-person visitation with the hotel, the Airbnbs, and the events, we went through our own set of tough times and it played out exactly as I told you. We were as transparent as we could be. My leadership team met every morning to assess what had changed or not changed. We communicated to our associates on a regular basis. When we had to make difficult decisions, we explained why. And because we had for years before that established trust and credibility, they felt seen and heard and cared for and were engaged. They trusted us. And they rode the waves with us. And we all sort of went through the tough times together, if you will. And uh, I, I think it made us, I think all of that pre-work in terms of a, a healthy culture really set the stage for us to be able to navigate that much easier than a lot of organizations uh, that struggled with the same things. Um, it, it would not surprise our listeners, given the title of the book and what you've said so far, um, that a, a big strong emphasis in the book is a sort of inside-out approach 
of making uh, inner development and spiritual practice yeah. a um, a priority, a, a core beginning point for yeah. it uh, bringing uh, greater uh, qualities of of uh, productivity and all the things you you wish into the workplace. In the context of being CEO at Unity, that would not be a hard value to uh, inculcate in your constituents. In an in a profit making, especially a large company, uh, do you run into resistance to people? You know, tell say you know, my inner life is none of your business, and you. You can't make me meditate. You can't make me do these things. Um, how do you deal with that? So in some cases, and I'm, I'm hoping you'll get a kick out of some of these, but um, I used affirmations a lot when I was in the corporate world. And so an affirmation helps us sort of change our own inner dialogue, if you will. We all have this chattering monkey mind that that is constantly talking in the background. And in a lot of cases, it can be critical and it can be negative and can always bring forth the worst possible outcome. So affirmations as a spiritual tool and resource help us reset that. We catch ourselves spinning in one of these negative thinking loops. We say our affirmation to lift us out of it and uh, it basically change the way that we are thinking. And over time, it will end up changing our perception and our behavior. So how, do, how did I use that there? So one of the things I knew when I took over one of the roles um, was we were going to have to do a lot of changes. The team had had struggled a little bit in terms of what used to be a once great service operation. And so we were going to have to make a lot of changes in systems and processes and expectations. And so early on, when I first met with the team, I said, listen, this is our motto. I didn't call it an affirmation. This is our motto for the next year. I want everybody to say it with me. Change is our friend. So that became our motto. And over after a while, they began to joke with me about it. They're like, okay, we know, Jim, change is our friend. Because every time I'd introduce a new change or a change in direction, we would talk about it. And so pretty soon, the same organization that was resistant to change and really struggling became this resilient group of very productive folks who not only embraced the change and innovation, but then started contributing to it, bringing forth their own ideas and really seeing the value of the changes we were making and wanting to create more. Uh, another simple tool I used, and this one is, is a little bit, uh, little bit more humorous, I think, but uh, there were cases where we would have people in meetings who were constantly seeing the worst and constantly wanting to challenge any of the changes we made because of you know, fear of failure or what have you. And so I found this, <laughs> this old saying that was taught in one of the the teenage classes I worked in, and it basically goes like this. Your mind is the garden, your thoughts are the seeds, you can grow flowers or you can grow weeds. And so when people would spin down that negative thing, I would bring that up. And, and people chuckled about it at first, but then what happened is later on, they would police themselves. So you'd catch one associate going, okay, come on, Phil, you're, you're really spinning down and you're growing weeds here. And we're trying to focus on what the positives are of this of this particular solution and how it can be successful rather than how it can fail. And so little things like that, um, I think went a long ways to, to getting it across without bringing all of the, the overhead 
um, of spirituality or, or those sorts of things. Do you ever run into the opposite of what I asked about? And I'm basing this question on memories of the early days of my spiritual path when my uh, fellow travelers were young and perhaps a bit naive, that because uh, when you're when people are spiritually uh, afire and, uh, you know, their path is priority, do you run into people who think, who resist hard work because it's supposed to be easy if you use, if you meditate, if you use affirmations, if you use prayer, if you have the right thoughts, you, you should be able to manifest uh, and step into prosperity uh, consciousness yeah. without too much hard work. Yeah. Do you run? <laughs> Absolutely. In fact, there's a saying for that that I've heard in certain circles where they say um, they are so. How do they say it? They're basically they're so spiritually they're so ethereal they're of no earthly good. That that's the saying that I was trying. <laughs> to um, and what people I think miss is. If you really look at what we're talking about here, and this is across all the traditions, but the creation process or the manifestation process involves three steps. Starts in the mind. Everything in the world that you see started out as an idea in someone's mind, right? So it starts with thoughts, and then you begin to bring form to those thoughts using our words. So it's thoughts and words. The last piece is the one people often overlook. Action. You have to start taking small steps towards those things that you're thinking and affirming. Because if you do the first two without the third, you're not going to manifest. In addition, I would say, if your thoughts or words are out of alignment, so you're thinking positive, but you're saying the opposite of what you're thinking out of habit or what have you, or your actions aren't aligning with your thoughts and words, then you're not going to be successful in, in the, create, the creative process. So um, it has happened, and people do often overlook that uh, <laughs> that last step. And so we have to have a, a conversation about how we need to have a little more activity to, to achieve the goals we're seeking to achieve. Well, I will affirm that in all my research with the, uh, with, about and uh, with uh, prominent gurus, they're among the hardest working people I've ever known. Precisely. They stay cheerful and calm and, you know, uh, pleasant but they work long hours you know, and they um, I was struck in looking at your book that the very first chapter is called making money is permissible. Mm -hmm. Why was it necessary to write that chapter and why did it come first? Um, primarily, I think that there has been, uh, especially in the West, this association with profit and making money is inherently bad. And it's it's largely based on, you know, historical data and figures where greed has been in place. But in general, money is not bad. Having nice things is not bad. Wanting to be prosperous or rich or profitable is not bad. Every organization in the world that exists is going to need money if they're going to continue to exist. And so we really have to separate, especially in the nonprofit and spiritual world, we have to separate this notion that um, you're somehow less spiritual or less enlightened if you 
are making a lot of money or pushing towards making a lot of money because money is the energy it's the it's the energy and the currency of the day and so without it none of us are going to survive and so i just really wanted to put to bed this notion that making money or being prosperous is a bad thing and that you can actually do both you can do some really powerful and great work in the world and also be prosperous the two don't have to be mutually exclusive Another of your chapters is titled Avoiding Common Missteps. What are the missteps and uh, what are the uh, antidotes? So we've talked about two of them already. One of the first ones is the common leadership philosophy. Um, I think companies spend an inordinate amount of money on trying to figure out how do I create a healthy culture and how do I get my folks more engaged? And so that common leadership philosophy and one that is, is supportive in nature will get you there. It's often overlooked. You see it all the time. And I, I sort of alluded to it earlier. So you've spent all this money enhancing the benefits and creating meditation spaces and, and really pushing people to have a, a work-life balance only to find out that you know a couple of people are having completely different experiences in your organization. And it's largely due to a leadership philosophy, if you will. So that's one the second one is around creativity and creation and manifestation. It's important to have those three elements that we talked about. And so often folks will will have the, the, the thoughts and the words and the actions like we talked about, but they'll be misaligned or uh, they're missing one of the steps like the action step that we talked about. So those are those are two of the biggest ones that I see most often. Are you running it? We, we're recording this on uh, July 27th. 2022. Um, the Fed just raised interest rates again in an attempt to uh, control inflation. Um, we're having a heat wave across the US and Europe that was devastating climate changes. And there seem, there's a lot of fear afoot and anxiety um, in these unusual times. Uh, does this style of leadership uh, come into play in, in particular ways, in specific ways to handle? I mean, you are the leader of an organization. Right. Uh, our, some of our listeners may be uh, managing uh, teams of various sizes or uh, businesses of various sizes. Um, how do you help people who are under your umbrella deal with the the kind of fear and anxiety that seems to be uh, afoot these days? So that is a great question. And one of the core tenets of not only servant leadership, but of this whole style is empathy. You have to have the ability to understand where the people on your teams are coming from. What are they dealing with? And oftentimes when, when I we have someone that's struggling in a particular position, our first question is, why can't you do this better? It's, is everything okay? Is there something happening in your personal life that, that may be impacting your ability to do the work? And so you start from an empathetic place, but, and so that holds true across all of this, understanding what your teams are facing in the real world. It does no good to ignore it. And so you can couch some things that you're doing in the organization around the recognition of what's happening in the world. You can provide support resources. You can, you can create discussion groups for people to talk about these things. But most importantly, 
it's really just about listening, listening deeply and empathizing with where people are. And if you can provide any form of support or coaching or help, then you're doing that. Um, and so whatever that looks like. And so it, it's and the more you're able to connect with people where they are and what they're dealing with, the better results you're going to have. You're going to earn their trust. You're going to earn their respect. You're going to earn their loyalty. And they're going to feel supported and cared for in the organization. And so, listen, we're all struggling with these same things. You're right. I could look around and and uh, we could talk about the chaos that is, that is showing up in all sorts of areas. We can't live there. We can't ignore it either. You can't do the spiritual bypass thing where we just put a bunch of positive platitudes over it. You have to talk about the reality of, of what's there. And, and to your point, if there are resources, tools, resources, books, booklets, things that you can, you know, provide to people to help them uh, better cope with, with some of these things, there are lots of practices and tools and resources emerging to help people sort of stay centered, to not get caught in that that spiral of anxiety. And and uh, so I think putting those things in place, letting people know you're there um, can go a long way in terms of of not only supporting your folks, but deepening your relationship with them as well. Thanks, Jim. Final question uh, by way of leaving our uh, listeners with um, a good starting point if they want to implement some of the principles in your book, and I'll hold it up again, the Zen executive. Thank you. Um, how would you advise them? And this may be a separate question, but it may be tied in. You you uh, speak a lot about the importance of mission statements mm -hmm. as a setting uh, a certain guiding principle. Yep. Um, take those uh, two separate questions and do with what you will with us. <laughs> sure. So the first one, I think where you begin, it, you mentioned it earlier, it really is an inside out process. And so there's two two big takeaways here. The first one is, Un, first, understand your influence. And we've alluded to it, but I want to say it more directly. Understand your influence as a leader. The way you lead directly impacts those that serve on your team, emotionally and mentally, and in some cases, physically. And so the, the better and safer they feel working on your team, the healthier they're going to be. And the same holds true for you. There's a whole big section on self-care, which is really, really important. If you yourself are stressed out and in a constant emotional state of anxiety or upset, you're not making good business decisions and you're probably not interacting with people in a, in a healthy way. And so I think <clears throat> understanding your influence and then understanding the importance of your own inner balance and health and well-being and how that impact how you show up in the world. <clears throat> That's the first part. Um, so understanding your influence and then taking steps to make sure that you're sort of uh, balanced emotionally, mentally, and even spiritually, uh, if you can get there, uh, are the most influential things you can do to start down this path. Mission statements, I talk a lot about it in the, in the book because, man, honestly, I ran across a couple of organizations that had these really compelling mission statements, and they had several common characteristics. They were short, they were memorable, and they were meaningful. And, and what I saw, and these are in corporate profit, you know, uh, profit focused organizations, but they were, they inspired 
the folks that work there. And so I picked that up and, and sort of, I can basically tie it to what we talked about earlier, which is the spiritual tool of affirmation. When you have a short and memorable and compelling mission statement, whether it's personal or whether it's part of an organization, it can become a touchstone. First of all, you've given the organization something bigger than all of you to focus on and strive for. Secondly, it can become a touchstone that then informs your big decisions. So you can go back to it and say, hey, does this align with our mission? Is this in alignment with our mission? Is this behavior or this thing that we're about to do reflective of our mission? So it can really be used in, in, a, in a number of powerful ways to inspire as a touchstone to, to sort of keep you on track and keep you focused. Because what you're essentially creating is this giant group affirmation. So now you've got everyone in the organization that's affirming the same thing, which means you've got energy and action all moving in the same direction, which is a really, really powerful place to be in terms of generating momentum and achieving success. Thank you, Jim. It's been a pleasure. Let me uh, once again hold up your book, The Zen Executive, Gems of Wisdom for Enlightened Leadership. And listeners, viewers, the mission of Spirit Matters is to bring you wise people who will help uh, guide your spiritual life by with their all that they know and uh, all that they've experienced. And we want to continue doing this. And as Jim said, all organizations, even one as tiny as a podcast, need uh, financing to continue uh, to grow and provide the best possible services. So if you're so moved, uh, click the contribute button on our website and uh, make your offering. Um, and as my co-host Dennis always likes to point out, we're not a nonprofit, so it's not tax deductible, but it, we will be very grateful. And um, let your friends know about us, let, write to us, tell us of people we should interview, give us feedback. And uh, if you're an occasional listener, please hit the subscribe button so you know what's coming up and... Um, we can boast about our number of subscribers. So thank you for listening, Jim. Thank you again for being with us. All the best. Good luck with the book. Thank you. It was my honor and privilege. And thank you for all the good work you're putting out.